When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Forever. Hi, Anna. Hi, Andrew. And hey, everybody else. And welcome to our podcast, Scary Scary Stories Stories to Tell on the Pod. Pod. It is a podcast about scary stories, urban legends, spooky things you tell us about. And uh, for much of the year, we focus on Alvin Schwartz and Stephen Gamble's Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark series. But this summer, we are engaging Anna in uh, a a little thing we like to call Summer Summer of Summers or Stephen Summers Summer. Summer. Please continue to vote. (laughs) The Demi primaries are ending in one and a half years. The super delicates are being flown. Super delicates. <laughs> They're super delicates. Super delicates. You have to wash it on no water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you put it in your washing machine and don't turn it on. <laughs> um, but we are taking a good little chunk of this summer talking about Stephen Summers, the blockbuster horror auteur. Blockbuster horror. <laughs> <laughs> Two dollars for a few days. <laughs> Black. His his um uh I was about to say bubblegum pop, but that's not what I meant. I mean popcorn horror movies that are mostly fun action-y with horror elements. There's a lot. There's sort of like it's a it's like Fast and the Furious if instead of cars it was like ancient corpses. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a, it's no mystery it made almost a billion dollars at the box office. Yes. And um, Anna and I covered uh, The Mummy last week. Huge moment for the two of us. Still feel like there's much to unpack. It was very emotional and vulnerable. I'm having like a vulnerability hangover, but in a nice way. It really is. I mean, it really is a movie that I know uh, impacted you and I both in different ways, but both tremendously. (laughs) Um, And it made you taller. It made me much shorter. And we were very excited to um, look into the second installment in this series, which is The The Mummy Mummy Returns. Returns. Uh, 2001. (sighs) 9-11 has not yet happened. It hasn't happened yet. We are booming. Yes. We're not busting. Malcolm in the Middle is ready and raring to go. It's George W., but he's like, fine. Everyone loves him. <laughs> Everyone's like, that little scoundrel. Look, it's the mayor's son. <laughs> um, yeah. He's wearing a suit like a grown-up. We were having fun. Came out on May 4th, I think. 
think you're right. Feels right. I remember, Andrea, do you have any memory of seeing this in the theater? I saw this movie on Jimmy Warren's birthday. <gasps> it was his birthday party. Um, and afterwards, we uh, went out for pizza, and Mr. Warren asked all of us what our favorite movie was. And um, everyone said The Mummy Returns. <laughs> I think it was just that age where everyone was sort of like, whatever I saw last is the best movie I've ever seen. That makes sense. Yeah. How about yeah. you, Anna? Um, I saw it, I was going to say in eighth grade, but it came out in 2001. So that's seventh grade. No. Yeah. That's boring. Who cares? But <laughs> what I distinctly remember is that from fifth grade to seventh grade, you're a blossom. Oh, You've blossomed. Huge. Yeah. I glued on blue Sally Hansen nails <gasps> to go and see it oh. because I was a grown up, And I remember doing this thing repeatedly like anytime something crazy happened, I remember my jaw would drop and I would like brush my bangs out of my eyes <laughs> with my claws. And I would go, <gasps> and then like tuck up behind me or like, what? <laughs> there are which now? Smaller mummies? <laughs> this is blowing my ass. <laughs> like needing to be seen as hot while being like, I like the mummy. Yeah. Which oh, was new. Huge. Yeah. I mean, I think it, we were just taught, so we, we've just watched it. We're hot off the presses yeah. here. We feel basically the way that I felt back then, which was like, I'm at my own wedding. <laughs> I guess that is how weddings work is that you go. <laughs> Can you imagine? I'm, I'm at my own. <laughs> but I had been obsessed with this movie for two years and then the sequel came out. And I just remember like the way my chest felt was like breaking. Like yeah. I could, it was so hot. And I don't feel that way now. I know. I've seen it. I do remember enjoying it very much in theaters, which maybe is the idea. I mean, what's 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 great about this movie? Entire cast has returned pretty much. Basically, yeah. Your Benny Gabor is is deceased. R.I.P. Yeah. Um, but aside from him, Winston is deceased. Right. Rest I'll in hell. Sucked into the sweet sand. Friend. <laughs> <laughs> I, we, Ann and I texted uh, uh, days and days after we watched the first mummy just to be like, I can't believe Winston is in that movie for 90 seconds. We talked about like I was walking Lady Bird at night and it came to me like a bolt from the blue, how insane the character of Winston is. And yes. I'd never question it because I saw it when I was young enough to be like everything that adults make is normal. <laughs> but a screeching senior citizen who openly craves death and is an alcoholic and then dies screaming and yeah. is, as you said, sucked into the earth right. is a plot point in a summer blockbuster. <laughs> so weird. It's, it is also another gay thing about that movie, which is um, you ever accept to go on a suicide mission because Brendan Fraser asked you to drop yeah. you off someplace. It is the <laughs> wildest thing. Um, so this movie, yeah, we got Brendan Fraser back. We got Rachel Weiss back. We've got um, Arnold Vosloo. Patricia Velasquez is returning as an ox in the moon. back and she has... 80 times as many lines, which is not enough. She is a yes. vision. She's perfect. Talk about blossomed. She has, I really think that we missed out on her playing a Pierce Brosnan era bond villain. She yes. really was supposed to do that. I think she embodies the ridiculous stakes and makes them seem cool and normal. Also, Anne and I were electrified to realize Patricia Velasquez, a queer person. She gay. She gay. This uh, is so great. It's really good news for everybody. 
yet another thing. I feel like happy maybe, pride, happy, happy pride. Um, so she has returned, uh, some new, Oh, John Hannah as Jonathan is back. Of course. Some new additions. Oh, uh, we said Oded fair is our, Oh, fair. oh my yes, God. How he's could back. I forget who you couldn't. And Oded fair is back in a big way because as Anna said, for sure, they got some like test audience responses from the last time that were like, we want more Oded. We want to see more of his hair. Can you dress him in sexier clothes? Let us see his body. And they were like, <laughs> we can't. And they were like, could it get scratched open several times? Yes. And they were like, I guess. <laughs> I think they didn't realize that he was hot. Yes. And now, boy, oh boy, gentle listeners. They know. They know. They and know. he knows. He knows. Um, and the bird knows. There's a bird now. Oh, yeah. So uh, here's the thing. <laughs> The movie, okay, we love it. We, yes. We're doing a podcast about it. It's clear that we love it. We can't make anything good. Everything we ever make will be bad. <laughs> that said, we're about to talk for 45 minutes about <laughs> feeling let down by it a little bit. Yes. So there just some, where do we even start? Okay, so the, the basic gist of this is it introduces this new character, the Scorpion King, played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson. In his first big in role. In his first big role. Most of his lines are screaming, yeah. Yeah. I think that those are all Crane shot up into the earth, in the sky. Yeah, he eats a scorpion. Um, but yeah, he sells his soul to the dark god Anubis. It, basically, the whole function of this movie is that uh, Imhotep has been resurrected from his tomb um, and he is seeking to defeat the Scorpion King in order to have an army that can take over the world. Yeah, it's, it's a little an, it's a little vague. It's confusing. Yeah. And it's like it is this movie we've said in ways it's queerer in other ways. It's like too straight where yeah. like the concept of an army as something that you want. Right. Is not it like took a while for my brain to understand. Wait, so why do they want the Scorpion King? They're going to resurrect him and then kill him. Why can right. you just leave him? And it was like, oh, they need his army. That's what here. Here's what's so successful about the first one to me, and I think a lot of a lot of my unpacking of this episode is about realizing what works so much about the first one, is that the villainy that Imhotep commits in the first one is all in the service of being reunited with his, you know, uh, uh, lover. You know, like yes. it, it. That is everything. It's a very human want. In this one, um, an oxygen moon just shows up. Walks straight up to Imhotep and is like, I am, I'm the reincarnated version of Anaxuna Moon. Yes. Which is like, oh my God, well, that's everything you ever wanted. So then it's confusing as to why he wants this huge army. He's been reunited. As you said, they should get a condo somewhere. Just get a condo, go somewhere. But I guess like their love story, this is why, not to moralize, this is why it is difficult to sustain a relationship that starts with cheating. Wow. Because you are addicted to and riding high on the drama. Yeah. And like when you don't have the drama, it can't work. It's very and like point. that's why they need to take over the world because like, you know, Seti the First is dead. Yeah. And like they can't just have a condo. That's not their dynamic. And Instagram and TikTok don't exist yet. There's no way to kind of monetize yeah. what they've got. They couldn't just become influencers. Yeah. That truly would be, they would do acro yoga and smooch in the middle of it. And oh, I'd have to throw my phone in the toilet. Absolutely right. <laughs> um, and I do feel like this movie was leaning very hard in the direction of 
recognizing that much of the success of the first mummy was as a PG 13 film that people could bring their kids to. And in this, in this one, we are fast forwarded 10 years. So much to the point that, um, Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas city, go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, Rick and Evelyn have a eight-year-old kid. This movie does what some sitcoms do, and they just add a kid. Yeah. And an animal. Uh, Ardeth Bay gets a pet bird. Name Osiris. No, Horus. Horus. Yeah. He said, my best and most trusted friend, which is like, what? Well, Ardeth, then why didn't we see him when you were trying to stop Hominopter from being discovered? One thing, one way that I feel very robbed by this movie is that he has so many lines. He has so much exposition and no backstory. So that's a letdown. I love the line. So there, the great parts of this movie are the things that it gives us a lot of, but not enough of at the same time, sure. which are the fight scenes. Oh yeah. The shining moments. You've got obviously the iconic dagger fight between Rachel uh, Vice, Rachel Vice and, and Patricia. Patricia Velasquez, which is fantastic. Yeah. And genuine fun. So much fun. And that, which we'll talk more about. Um, and then the fight on the double decker bus with the, reanimated temple guard mummies. Oh, that I do love, which that. is very fun. Yes. Jonathan's driving the bus, which feels right. Yes. Um, and Rick and Ardeth and Evelyn are fighting mummies on a double decker bus in London. Guns and swords. So yeah. much fun. Yeah. And then at the very end, he says like after they've killed all the mummies and they're all like, <sighs> he says, that was my first bus ride. And I was so like, charming in, and it was like such a, a surge of warmth. And then they're just back to like, exhausted plot. I said in the middle of it, it was like being told a story by an eight year old yes, where you're like, uh huh. And they're like, and this other thing happened. You're like, God, just pick a lane, you know? <laughs> and Imhotep's encased in Amber. It's like, yeah, everything is, everything is just a little bit too much, which I think, I don't know. It's the thing we love about Steven Summers. And this is just a case in which, um, sometimes a slightly bigger budget can result in choices that make it less compelling to watch. Yeah. So this is a big gut that I have and not to be disrespectful to anybody. And I wasn't there and I I was barely born yet and (laughs) I don't know anything and I'm stupid and everything I make is bad. That's (laughs) it felt very much like, and then then with Van Helsing even more so that the issue is Steven Summers with absolutely no, intervention (laughs) Mm. because at least with the first one, they were like, we're giving you this major franchise. We uh, need to be involved somehow and pull it back and make it more personal. And this felt like Steven Summers being like, Hey, I made you over $400 million on an $80 million budget. Yeah. So we're going to do exactly what I want. (laughs) And sometimes getting exactly what you want makes it worse. That's a fair, like um, Anna, you brought up that uh, in the first movie, Steven Summers initially in like the, the final big fight scene wanted a scene in which a giant Anubis statue is brought to life. Yeah. 
And the studio was like, we, we don't have money for that. And he improvised and was like, okay, then we're going to have like the temple guards, the mummified temple guard scene, which yeah. is so successful. It's so much cooler. And somehow, like, even though we'd already seen a bunch of mummies, it was still cool and spooky. Yes. Yes. Um, which part of it is the musicality of it. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very good. Uh, it was like, <laughs> fine, whatever. It's like very Looney Tunes and cool, <laughs> but it worked. And then the, like, so he didn't get what he wanted that time. He had to improvise and it was better. Yes. This time he's like, they call apparently they called Steven Summers the day after the mummy came out and said, we need another one. So right. he's like, okay, cool. This is my show. Um, in the very first scene, there's a billion Anubises running around. Oh boy. This, the, the army of Anubis is a bunch of Anubis dudes. Yeah. Kind of wear jackals, wear jackals running around on the hind legs, like little spooky dudes. Yeah. And then they come back later in the movie. There's two, very long battle scenes with them. And this time they are mummies and they're vascular and they're rotting and you can see into them. So it's not just like a smooth plane of skin. It's they're animating like rotten chunks of flesh out and like seeing through them at parts, which is so hard. Right. Um, and a big criticism of this movie is that it's a lot of VFX. This is 2001. So you've got the matrix, you've got, um, Titanic was a few years before industrial light and magic was, a big thing. You said Attack oh, of the Clones. Yeah, Jason brought up Attack of the Clones. Which, which yeah. watching it, there is a very similar uh, aesthetic, to, for, like which sounds wild to say, but um, Star Wars at the time and The Mummy Returns have this sort of like gloss, like everything. Everything's is, flat. Right. They hadn't figured out lighting yes. was a big thing. Yeah. So like the textures on everything, it just looks like it's not in the same room. Um, especially, which is a big thing when spoiler, when the rock comes out at the end as Scorpion King, Oh boy, he, it's shocking. The VFX is only as good as the budget and support that they're given. And if they're given a timeline, that's far too short, there have to be, uh, sacrifice made. I don't know that that's what happened here, but if you watch this movie, every shot has some kind of VFX in it. Yeah. Pretty much every single shot. And, and that's, that's, yeah, the, the, the issues are not on the VFX department. Right. It's, it's, it's a director's responsibility to be like, what is going to be effective? And what's yeah. Going to be effective. And like, I, it just seemed like it was so much of him being like, no, let's do it. Why wouldn't we do it? Yeah. And like, you, you're not considering the people you're working with and like whether or not it's necessary. Right. Um, so Anna, who is the monster? The monsters. There's a lot more in this one than the first one. Oh I know the first one, they were like, look, if it was just Imhotep and mummies, and we made $400 million, then let's do a lot of them. You've got Imhotep. He's back. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got the Scorpion King. Um, You've got a lot of other pygmy mummies. Yeah. Which which is, that one's a big, like, (laughs) I think often we, because the rock is a, uh, a half scorpion, half man monster in the end, we forget that there is a pretty huge uh, uh, set piece in this movie that kind of borrows heavily from like Velociraptor scenes and yes, Park and yeah, World. and like the little dudes, the little dinosaurs. Oh, Comstognathus is oh, wow! You just absolutely had that ready to go. Did you know that I'm that kind of nerd too? Yes, Dino Chris, nerd. Chris is laughing about something in particular. Am I mispronouncing it? Comstognathuses. Comstognathuses. I'm not saying it right. Okay. 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 Um, it's <laughs> I we, for short we call them compies in the industry. Got it. Um, so here's the deal: there is a whole big scene in a tropical oasis in the middle of the desert. 
um, in which we've seen every different type of mummy, right? What else could there possibly be? Well, there are miniature mummies that appear to kind of be uh, uh, a cross between, and this is the energy that they're giving, not the reality, a cross between like the monkeys from Jumanji, Mm -hmm. mischievous, and also mummies. But the way they are synopsized in all the media around the, the movie are as pygmy mummies, which I think a lot of us, it just like didn't occur to us that pygmies are real people. It's, yes. it's a real, they're a real ethnic group in several different continents. Um, and they're often very marginalized, uh, enslaved or wiped out people. And it's just, it, 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 to me, it's like, Oh, that's, that's the type of 2001 this is where it's like the thought of a mummy, but little, and then you just go like, Oh, pygmy mummy. No one will care. (laughs) That is the trouble very often with, uh, odes to pulp comics is Mm -hmm. that like the good thing about those things are they're fun. They're campy. They're easy to follow. You know, we love kind of lovable scamps. Um, but they often leaned really hard into stereotypes or just like created completely false information or lumped together huge groups of people or villainized groups of people who were by and large, not white people. And, uh, and yeah, we just shouldn't do it anymore. The monster in this movie is whitewashing and racism. Wow. Wow. Also, uh, Anubis's army, a bunch of scarabs are back. Yeah. Um, and scorpions are there. Scorpions, and for also sure. walls of dead souls. Um, very scary. I know. Good to see. Good to see the dead souls working again. Yeah. Okay. Let me go through my notes because I took a lot of notes while we okay. were doing this. Um, why isn't it? Wait. Should we do first? Um, why is it better than the mummy? Because this is a shorter list. Yeah. And then we can talk about why it wasn't as good. Um. Uh. Yeah. I had something you said was more girl gay stuff. Definitely more girl gay stuff. Which um, is nice. Which is, yeah. There's stuff. We get more time. We get a fight scene between uh, Evie and Anaxuna Moon. There, there is just a lot more fun to be had with Anaxuna Moon, like as a villain. Uh, Patricia just nails the delivery of every line she has. Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, I will say also, we, we talked about this too. The the classification of this movie as mom porn is really expanded in this one. Yes. The character of Lakna is like Yeah. He's shot like a like absolute like a commercial for just a delicious treat. <laughs> like the camera just like zooms in and out on him and like, yeah. And, and that's, it's like that role could have just been like a throwaway henchman role. And yeah. it's also the fact that Rick and Evie have this incredibly erotic marriage they 10 years in. Absolutely. Fuck. They are macking it in front of their eight year old son as he's Macaulay Culkin punning their asses off and they don't care. And you can tell that like, they will just start having sex in a room and he has to leave. Yes. Like, it's not like they're like, we're going upstairs. Like they are freaky freaks in this movie. That's why the son's causing all that mischief. It truly, he says multiple times like, Oh, not this again. And it's like the fact that he is a kid has noticed it enough times that now he's like to him, self-making jokes means like he, if you know, this is taking place in the thirties, but if it were now like, that's absolutely something he would talk about in therapy. Yeah, for sure. He like comes across as a typical child of junkie parents. <laughs> like he's <laughs> like, Oh great. I'm grown up and wearing a tie and like, everything's fine, but I'm also like getting into trouble. <laughs> and the way that they behave, it's like, 
it is like pillaging ancient tombs are their drug of choice. Like they're like, I'm so hot after that mission. They're I want to go on another mission. You better not. <laughs> and, and there's like all this stuff where he's like, we could do it my way or your way. And her ways with like tiny little tools and his ways with like a huge tool. Like there's just a lot of eroticism around that. So I can see why. Uh, moms, I do think love this movie. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's fun to be like, our kid is here, but I'm still absolutely getting railed, which is, <laughs> which is what we want. Here's the important thing is that when I was a kid, loved it, had a great time. And I think that that's the decision this movie is making is like, we're making this movie for kids, which weirdly yeah. as Anne and I did some, cause we were like, Oh, this must be like a toyetic movie, which is a, a like an industry toyetic. term. Yeah. yeah. It, I think it was coined during the Joel Schumacher Batman movies oh where it was like all about how many toys could a franchise produce. And what I was surprised by is that very few mummy returns toys exist. Yeah. I assumed that the bracelet of Anubis would be the oh, tool because it's like a big gold bangle with a scorpion on it that Freddie both the yeah. actor who plays Alex puts on to show him where he's going to go. Right. There's like a whole... Um, wild goose chase, like scavenger hunt in this yeah. movie, which is just a sign that there is not enough story happening <laughs> where it's like, I have to go there and there and there and there and there. Like, oh, maybe let the characters have some development. But and, uh, you pointed out so well that that could have been the talk boy of this movie, but that toy would have been so gay because it's just like a big gold bracelet that shows me cool places I could go. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's like a viewfinder that you wear that looks good. Um, but we couldn't find any online. No. Uh, do women talk to each other? Yes. Um, Patricia Velasca or uh, Evelyn as her character, she plays uh, Pharaoh's daughter. There are yeah. flashbacks. God, I'm sorry, y'all. You should. I hope you watch this movie. If not, this is going to be entirely because for to us you. to summarize it is not possible. It yeah. would take the entire runtime of and the movie. And you'd all be so angry with us. You'd be also angry. Um, but there are flashback scenes where Evelyn is looking at her past lives. She was Pharaoh Seti the first's daughter. Nefra. She- Nefertiri. Surprise. Surprise. Gotcha. (laughs) Who caught me sleeping? (laughs) Um, And, uh, yeah, I think that's it. I think they're the two women and they do talk to each other. They talk to each other about, I hate you. Yes. The reason they hate each other is because Nefertiri intuits that, uh, Anuxunamun is cheating on her father with Imhotep. She catches them, which the, the moment of her catching the two of them, glancing at each other is yeah. beautiful. And I thought the sound design was fucking phenomenal. It is very cool. It is so inventive and weird and cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's and the first movie was nominated for, I think for sound. I that forget if sense. it's sound mixing or editing. Yeah. But, th- but definitely somewhere in that arena. That definitely makes sense. Yeah. Um, but like, so this is the strength of the first movie. Yes. Not to bring it back to the first movie again, but let's talk about why it's not as good. There's a lot. Um, it's too much stuff. Yeah. There's too much stuff. It's a classic Steven Summers issue. Um, there's too much stuff. Too many characters. Too many characters, which at the time as a kid watching it, I was like, ooh, there's even more mummy characters to love. But then like a lot of them die kind of early on. In many ways, the first mummy movie from a storytelling perspective is Evie's movie. Like 
her journey is the biggest. Yeah. We're fought like we, we start following her journey more clearly than any, anyone else's. She ends a different person than she began. Like she wanted to be a Bainbridge scholar, but she didn't have enough field experience. She got it. She just says, take that Bainbridge college. Like she is nailing it. And in this movie, we could have leaned further into that. And she has more plot wise to do in this movie, but like her personality is somehow gone textually. Like Rachel's still working hard. She's working so hard. And she also is like doing crazy fight scenes and then trying to make this dialogue. That was another thing that was worse about this movie is that everyone kind of talks like each other. Even Imhotep when, when, um, shit, I can't remember the name of his priest. The guy who was also in, uh, he's played by Alan Armstrong. Yeah. Uh, when he's saying, save me, save me. And Motep goes, why? And it's just like, like he wouldn't say anything or right. just, I don't know. I, I didn't write the mummy. Stephen <laughs> Summers did like, you get to decide what Motep says. If he says, if he said it, that means that it's something that he says. Yes. But like, it just, there's what you're saying. Like there's a general wash. Right. Um, yeah. This one's got like, this one's got sort of all of the, um, platitudes in screenwriting of like, I did not need to see that. Like everything is very, um, like, like gearing towards a trailer instead of like, what would a character actually say in this moment? Yeah, you're right. It does feel like it's playing for the trailer. It feels like they're playing with scared money when it's like, this was a massive success. What's the problem? Why are you upset? Right. Calm down, girl. You made a good movie. <laughs> Stop that. I know. You're pretty. Stop putting on all that makeup. Wipe it off with your sleeve Wipe now. Wipe it off. It yeah, like going back to the too much stuff thing, like it I was like, "Oh, certainly it's a different cinematographer." Yeah. It's the same. I know. And it's just that they have these like slow-mo shots and like whooshy sort of like frames taken out shots. Yeah. There's just so much going on. Also, like it's a part of the effects where they didn't know that you can't like really move the camera on yeah. a green screen, like a lot. And they're trying that a it lot. It looks so fake for a lot of it. Um, it, it's, it's funny because on one end it would seem like I, I feel for Steven in this because he's like, well, I'm following the same formula because there are analogous things to almost everything from the first mummy. It's like we have Winston in the first movie. We've got Izzy in this one. Yeah. And it, it like if Winston in an airplane wasn't interesting enough, Izzy much more um, uh, out, like outrageous, like funny, yeah. ha- almost like ended like, up character. Like a proto um, Jack Sparrow almost. Yes. Oh, that is exactly it. He's like this. He's this guy who owns a dirigible, which right. is a balloon, uh, who can help them get to where they need to go. My main issue is it's just not relatable. Like the reason the first one worked, I think, is exactly what you said, that it's about Imhotep trying to become reunited with Anaxuna Moon. Right. This and like in the opening, it opens on like close up or medium shots of the individuals that we're talking about. It's the Pharaoh, it's Imhotep, it's Anaxunamun. And then you've got his posse over here and then that posse. Right. It's And it's telling you exactly who they are. And it's a, so you can settle in and understand what's going on. This movie starts with like a bunch of different armies and Dwayne the, yes. Johnson is the only person who's an individual. So you're just like, wait, what's happening? There's a thousand people. And the mummy, it's about, love and lust and like desire and being trapped and fate and duty, which are extremely relatable. Those are among the easiest to relate to things you can write a story about. Yeah. And 
in and then the mummy returns and it opens with that and that is what the entire movie is about and there are echoes of that in every relationship throughout the mummy the mummy returns it's like we need to get there to get that guy and we want this and we want the whole world and it's like i can't relate to wanting to take over the whole world that doesn't feel stakesy to me yeah. that feels like okay that you sound like you have a personality disorder fellas you ever want a dog army to take over the world and make it a <laughs> universe of darkness <laughs> truly no i haven't <laughs> everyone here who beat the scorpion king say hey hey <laughs> no. Yeah, no. and and then it goes to the people we love rick and evie and they're fucking and they have a kid which is fun but uh oh, good catch anna i didn't really catch it everybody okay we got it i anna just caught the recorder just spider-man <laughs> catching equipment spider-man one item as it <laughs> fell um God, I, I love that I made fun of eight-year-olds for talking too much, and I'm, like, giving a full master's thesis on The Mummy versus The Mummy Returns. No, and I, I think, obviously, it's funny. I, like, I detect us having a more um, analytical tone in this one, and it is because, and I think this is always the trouble with, with uh, sequels, which is, like, people fall in love with the first one, and then the second one is about, like, maintaining that degree of love yes. or showing you something new. And I'm sure that's, like hard to do of course of course well because it's like a studio wants you to make another movie to make more money because the first one did and um and sometimes it's just really hard to make a second movie when the first movie is supposed to be the most interesting thing that's ever happened in your character's life completely <laughs> like how do you then say except for this next thing that happened what you yeah. saw before that was garbage yeah, like I'm having a hard time even now, having seen The Mummy Returns at least 30 times, yeah. telling you what Evelyn's drive is in this movie. I Because aside from like her and her husband are very rich now because they had the gold from Hominoptera. right. And that she has great reputation, that the Benbridge scholars want her to run, they've been begging her to run the British Museum, is just a throwaway line that happens while their son is like doing mischief in the background of that shot. Yeah. So it's like they can't even say something that's interesting without distracting us with something that's not interesting. I watched an old interview with Rachel Weiss from like uh, press from the when they were doing Mummy Returns, and uh, they asked like, "What's the difference from what's different from Evie now uh, compared to the last movie?" And she says something like, "Well, the last one, uh, uh, you know, sort of an ingenue finding herself, and in this one, Evie is more of." An angry mom. Like that is truly what she summons up. And you do get a sense of why maybe Rachel did not return from the third movie <laughs> yes. or did not return for the third movie because yeah, there's just, I don't know. Again, a lot of plot stuff is given to her. She gets stabbed to death. She gets brought back to life. She has a bunch of fight scenes. All of that on paper should look really good, but cohesively, most of her lines are about like, I love my husband or I need my son. Like, yeah. And there's like, not a lot to do with her. Yeah. And what's wonderful and charming about Rachel Weiss as a performer is she's just so charming. Like she is in that close up. She's very mischievous. Yes. And like, it's fun to watch somebody who looks like a perfect little doll have like <laughs> bad ideas. Yes. And she can't do that kind of, facial acting like little moments if she's also like i'm sure like doing push-ups 300 times a day and right. like doing a lot of fight choreography like i just can't see her being interested in that that is true yeah and 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 it's interesting like um rick's role in this rick's rick roll rick roll 
yeah, did has everyone <laughs> never mind. <laughs> um, um, ri- <laughs> I already got it. Yeah. <laughs> he opens up the sarcophagus and then we're <laughs> gonna give you a mummy. Um but Rick's role is also kind of diminished in this to the point that there are there are so many people that we're following that sometimes someone's death scene would pop up and I'd be like, who was that? I and, know. And like the moments that we have with Brendan Fraser in this movie are super charming. There's like a really delightful thing where he saves his son from getting like the life sucked out of him uh, with the rising of the sun. He's got to run into a temple. And again, like don't care so much about that, but his reaction once they get to the temple and he's like, it's really hard being a dad is delivered with such earnestness. That's like, Oh, right. Yes. This is a movie star. Yes. And he's good at this. And like, he's being given so much homework to do. Yeah. Yeah. Like I have to get this to get that. The scepter is the bracelet and we have to go on the train to get to the balloon to get to the, it's just like, you have a movie star. What are you doing? This is also occurring to me that I do think this was a thing that was happening in 2001. This was a time which I saw every movie probably four times in theaters. And I remember a criticism of like any time I would be with a parent at a movie, whether it was mine or someone else's, it would be like, there's no style to any of these movies. They're just sort of things happening plainly on screen. And I will say I think this was also just what was going on in blockbusters in 2001 where like every movie was kind of the same. You know what I mean? Yes. Like the the first movie has all of these other influences um, inspired by the original universal monster movies from the 1930s and forties. Again, Indiana Jones. And in this one, it's like, I don't even know what the reference points are. The reference points is like whatever Steven Summers has always wanted to do. Yeah. This is his blank check moment. Yeah. Um, that's really, it's such a good point. Like as Jason boyfriend of the podcast has said before about other things, it misses what is special about the mummy. Yeah. Like it misunderstands what is special about it, which are those, like we talked about very human stakes. Yeah. Like things that are normal to want. And also a big theme of the mummy that we haven't talked about is like the idea that we all die. And that all the things that matter to us so deeply in this life will just go away and how um, unbearable that idea is right. and how Imhotep would do whatever it took to not have his love just go away. Wow. It's not enough. One lifetime is not enough for the way that I feel about you. That is incredibly compelling. And then the mummy returns is like, that army needs to go there with this thing and I have the thing, but he needs it, but it can only be him. And I'm giving like, my bird a note. <laughs> like, like that's, that is, that yeah, is about like, 40% of the It movie. doesn't repeat any, exactly. It's like bird a note is the new thing you're doing, which is great. <laughs> but like you're repeating, it's a bird, a stork. Like right. the boy is echoing the same exact line that Jonathan echoed in the first when he's trying to re- resurrect his mother. Um, they repeat the columns knocking one into each other in a temple, the way that the bookcases were, they repeat a lot of things, but they, they don't repeat like the stakes (laughs) and the feeling. They're just like, what if we just did the jokes from before, but different. It's also so funny to realize that the like satisfying reference points are from a movie that came out two years prior. <laughs> like I think yeah. when we saw it as kids, it's like, Oh my gosh. Remember when I was 11 years old, that was nuts. And it, to see it as an adult now would be like, right. That's just what happened in the last movie that came out. Yeah. Well, that is what, um, Rebert said. he, Uh, What Ebert Ebert says, he gave a two stars, which is one star less than the mummy. Um, 
he said, if it were not for references to the mummy, this sequel would not hardly have a plot at all. Mm. I'm going to actually read a bunch of this review because I Please. think it's really interesting. It is a curiosity of movie action that too much of it can be boring. Imagine yourself on a roller coaster for two hours. After the first 10 minutes, the thrills subside. The mistake of The Mummy Returns is to abandon the characters and to use the plot only as a clothesline for special effects and action sequences. If we're not for references to The Mummy, the sequel to hardly have a plot at all, which I kind of disagree with. I think there's too much plot and zero story. For sure. Much of the story involves a magical pyramid of which it is written, no one who has ever seen it has returned alive. That logically leads us to wonder how they ever found out about it. (laughs) But logic applied to this movie will drive you mad. So will any, any attempt to summarize the plot. So I will be content with various observations. One, the ads give The Rock, the World Wrestling Federation star, equal billing with Fraser. This is a bait and switch. To call his appearance a cameo would be stretching it. He appears briefly at the beginning of the movie, is transmuted into a kind of transparent skeletal wraith, and disappears until the end of the film, when he comes back as the dreaded Scorpion King. I'm not sure at the end if we see the real rock or merely his face connected to computer-generated effects. His scorpion is blown up to giant size, which has the unfortunate effect of making him look more like a lobster tail than a scorpion. Wow. I continue to believe the rock has an acting career ahead of him. Wow. Wow. And after seeing this movie, I believe it is still ahead of him. (gasps) Girl. Oh. Ebert had his eye out. He really did too. Alex, the kid adds a lot to the movie by acting just like a kid. I particularly enjoyed it when he was kidnapped by a fearsome adversary of his parents, chained and taken on a long journey during which he drove his captor crazy by insistently asking, are we there yet? No, Ebert. Ebert, you're wrong. Yeah, I think kids are just a blind spot for him. Yeah, he's like, right, children are Bart Simpson, correct. Three, the dialogue, you have started a chain reaction that could bring about the next apocalypse, is fascinating. Apparently, we missed the first apocalypse, which does not speak well for it. <laughs> See, I like that little moment. I think it's fun, but I understand. It's an it. Ardeth Bay where he's like being crazy. Yeah. And it's, it's nice. Four, I have written before of the ability of the movie characters to outrun fireballs. In The Mummy Returns, there is a more amazing feat. Okay, I'm glad he's bringing this up. If the rising sun touches little Alex while he is wearing the magical bracelet, he will die. Parentheses, it is written. But Rick, carrying Alex in his arms, is able to outrace the sunrise. We see the line of sunlight moving on the ground right behind them. It is written by Eratosthenes that the earth is about 25,000 miles around. And since there are 24 hours in a day... Rick was running approximately 1,041 miles an hour. <laughs> the friction slid his skin off. Um, anyway, I, I just wanted to read that because I, I'm glad that he also had an issue with summarizing the plot. It yeah. seems impossible. And that's it. Yeah. And then we've got, how gay is it? Do you want to read the this list that I made? How gay is it? Here are the things that are gay about The Mummy Returns. Talking about your dreams. <laughs> As we've covered Loch Ness Cape Exit. I'm saying the words, I'm sorry I alarmed your son. (laughs) No kink at pride. (laughs) Waking up to being worshipped by 20 men. (laughs) Introducing yourself as, hi, I'm the reincarnated version of blank. (laughs) Shouting, burn her. (laughs) Solving your problems with a vase. Getting back with your ex and immediately planning a vacation. That's also straight. That's straight. So there is straight representation on this podcast. Extremely straight. Either going on vacation or inviting to Thanksgiving immediately after getting back together. (laughs) Um, Talking about your spleen hanging out of your body. Izzy says that and it is alarming. Yep. 
telling Brendan Fraser to use you as a surfboard, which is another <laughs> thing that Izzy says, which is bonkers. You can wax my legs, shave my head, and use me as a surfboard. That Why is, is that your first suggestion? Yeah, wax my legs? What are you talking about? How do you know about what the surfboard is? It's 1933. <laughs> your daughter and your mistress hating each other. That is also straight. It is. Um, making intricate sandcastles for your parents. <laughs> Being rude to your friend who just drove you somewhere. <laughs> what was that for? That was Izzy has just risked life and limb, destroyed his dirigible, and and Rick is super rude to him. It's oh, like, yeah. well, you uh, you can fill this thing with hot air. I'm like, your friend just dropped you off in the desert. Like he's you've destroyed his car. <laughs> um, getting stabbed by your dad's ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> Famously, Evelyn gets stabbed by an ox in the moon, um, who was her dad in the past life wife. Anyway, um, and then Jason's submission, having matching tattoos. There is a moment <laughs> where Brendan Fraser realizes that the mysterious tattoo that we never saw on his on his body in the first movie, um, he has and is not very prominent in this one. And he shares it with a hieroglyph on the wall that then tells him exactly how to fix this whole movie's problem. It's like Ikea instructions for how to kill the Scorpion King. <laughs> very clear. The last thing that is gay about this movie is in the end, um, all of the oasis of the Scorpion King gets sucked into the sands <laughs> of the desert. We cannot stress to you enough just how much the image of the sand closing in on the oasis looks like a butthole puckering. Read what I wrote. The, the, the words, big sand butthole. <laughs> Let's get that chant going at the next baseball game. Big sand butthole. Big sand butthole. Give Steven Summers more money. (laughs) Um, So all that being said, we still had a hell of a good time watching this. I'd watch it again right now. We we remain as ever deep Steven Summers fans. And you should check this one out. Again, there are very fun elements to it. That double-decker bus scene is so great. And the actors are just fantastic. Um, And yeah, what else? We can only engage at this level of criticism if we love it. Exactly. We just spent an hour talking about a movie that came out 20 years ago. Um, But next week, Anna, Mm -hmm. we will be watching the spin-off feature film... Of The Mummy Returns, The Scorpion, the Scorpion King. King. And everybody, I'm delighted to say we've got some special guests who will be joining us. We do. It's going to be big. We'll share who that is on our socials, which you can follow us at scary story underscore pod. You can also send us your scary stories at scarystorypod at gmail.com. And uh, one more thing you can do. Get, Get out. out. Forever. <laughs> dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Scary Stories to Tell on the Pod is executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Tracy Soren. Original theme music by Chris Ryan. Cover art by Bats Langley. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcasts.com slash plus. Check out video clips of our podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook 
at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. <laughs> <laughs>